Welcome to the Refuge Church Podcast, where we long to see the lost saved, the saved transformed, and the transformed sent. For more information on Refuge Church, or to learn how you can give to this ministry, visit refugejacks.church. Again, a series through the Gospel of Luke, uh, and the plan is this fall to cover the first nine chapters, and then as we uh, we'll take a break for Christmas, and then at the end of January we'll jump back in, uh, leading us up to when we cover the Easter story in the Book of Luke. It will be Easter. Our calendar or our time here um, is, is really the plan we've been working with all along. We call the series "Meet Jesus" because the idea or the hope is that together, man, that that, that we can reintroduce ourselves to Jesus. Um, it, it, I think it's really easy to, to, to love what Jesus is about or what we even think he's about without actually knowing Christ and what he's really about. So the point of our series, man, is to, is to build intimacy with Jesus that I, I want to, man, it can't just be all truth all the time. There's got to be feelings for Jesus, a love for Jesus, but also, man, to build a depth or a knowledge of Christ. So intimacy and, and, and depth. Uh, so here's how I'll start. Several years ago, I had a chance to take my two sons to a Georgia football game in Athens. Now, if that's not your team, just hang with me. If you don't care about sports, hang with me. Um, But to that point, my boys had only seen seen, and cheered on uh, the football team that we cheer for, Georgia, on, on TV. That's all they knew of the Georgia Bulldogs. But that day, uh, as we beat the pants off of Tennessee, my boys got to see it with their eyes. And they also got to see the campus of the University of Georgia. If you're a Florida fan like Marshall, this is hard to hear right now, and I'm sorry, Marshall, but just hang with me, okay? They got to see all the pomp and circumstance that comes with a home game of a college team. Uh, We went to the store that day and bought Georgia stuff. We ate burgers on the quad, then we walked up into the stadium. And here's my, my most distinct memory of that day. We drove up Friday, spent the night at a friend's house, did it Saturday, drove back Saturday night. My most distinct memory is this. We had our tickets. We found out where our our gate check-in was. We went to that gate, checked in at that gate, walked in, started walking into the stadium, and I'm following the boys, watching them, trying to experience it through their eyes. We find out where the section of our seat is. We go to that area, and if you've been to a game or a concert or a large event, usually there's a hallway you walk down to some extent to where you come out of that hallway and everything opens up and you see the entire stadium. So it's about 20 minutes before kickoff, packed house, 94,000 people, And I follow them down this hallway, and they get to the landing where they can see the whole thing, where they can take it, they can take it all in. And I remember them, they they got, and as they approached the landing, they walked slower and slower, and they began to take it all in, from the players on the field, to the coaches, to the band, to the cheerleaders, to the fans, to the red and black and the music and the HD screen that they just looked at the whole time. They just took the whole thing in. And they just stood there almost frozen, like just like watching this. Because to that point, they had only seen it on a screen. And they had only experienced it through me. And they're taking this in. And we stood there, and a line built up actually behind us. Um, because we hadn't moved off this little landing. And finally, I had to nudge them. 
And so as I nudged them, they, they, started, they started walking like this. You know, they just taking it all in. They, they're tripping over seats. They're knocking people over. One of my sons kicked over somebody's drink because they're just so like taking in all that's happening all around them. And for the first time, I mean, the thing that they had only known through their dad and through TV became real. It wasn't real until then. The team that we cheered for was not just something they saw, but something they began to experience. And, and here's, here's, my, here's my thought. I mean, there are a lot of people today that have this experience with Jesus. They know of him, but they've never experienced him. They've seen him through other people, but they've never experienced him personally. And to experience Jesus in your life is to know him intimately. But I'd love for you to write this down if you're taking notes, man. It's very easy to love the idea of Jesus and never know who he is. It's very easy to love the idea of Jesus and never know man, who he is. In Luke 5, we're going to see Jesus called the first disciples. He's going to look at people and he's going to say, follow me. Man, it starts with an experience with Christ, as in all cases. And I want you to take note of the experiences. Something's going to happen. They're going to experience Christ, and they're going to be smitten. Their their attention is going to be fully grabbed. And they're going to move from someone in the audience or an attender um, into a disciple. As I was been thinking about and, and working through Luke chapter 5, one of the thoughts I kept coming back to is the, is the different kinds of people you might see at a concert. And I know we're Christians, but if you've ever been to a concert, you've got basically two different people. You've got this guy, right? Anybody want to claim that they're that guy? Anybody want to just kind of go ahead and claim that? Thank you for being honest. I appreciate your honesty. Anybody want to point at their spouse and say, no, don't do that. So like we got this guy, right? Because he's too cool or whatever. That's probably me half the time. And then you've got um, guy or girl who is sweaty head to toe, knows every lyric of every song, including the deep tracks, and they're screaming them when they leave their horse. You've got that person, right? And as I was thinking, I was thinking, man, that, I think that's, 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 that's kind of a great example of this. You're either an attender, right? Man, or you're a disciple of. Man, and, and what Jesus is wanting to do here is move people from attender man, to disciple. And so Jesus begins uh, the ministry of dis- developing disciples really in, in Luke chapter 5. And the question Jesus is really asking you and I today is, are you part of the audience and an attender? Man, are, are, are you a disciple and becoming a disciple of Christ? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die. Let me be very clear at the outset of this. The cost of being a disciple of Christ is death. And the, and the, and the cost of attending is just a few hours, but the cost of being a disciple is death. So I want you to write this down and then I'll get into Luke 5. A disciple of Jesus is three things. Is a worshiper. So what we're going to see in this passage is a servant and is a witness. A disciple of Jesus is one who worships, they respond, a servant, one who does, and a witness, one who sees and wants others to see. So witness is kind of twofold. So a disciple of Jesus is a worshiper, a servant, and a witness. Luke 5, verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowds were pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. I probably did that wrong. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So fishermen fished at night. It's daytime. It's the heat of the day. You don't catch fish in the heat of the day. Let's go clean the nets. Verse three, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, who we'll also know as Peter later, 
He asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So he used the boat as a stage, you might say, because there were so many people crowding in on him. It was a way to pull away, but have all their attention. Verse four, and when he had finished speaking, so again, there's still a crowd around. Like that was the thing I kept coming back to. There's probably still a crowd around. He said to Simon, put into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Now, let's just pause for a second and make sure we see what's happening here. Jesus was a, anybody know, a carpenter. He's not a fisherman. Peter was a fisherman and clearly he had had a rough night. As we're going to see him, he didn't catch anything. This would be what we're about to see akin to me showing up at your work tomorrow and going, hey, don't do it that way. Do it this way. I know I don't do that. Not an expert. Didn't go to school for that, but do it a different way. You, you would take it insulting. You probably wouldn't come back next Sunday to church. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put it in the deep. In verse five, Simon answers, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. I mean, if you, if, you, if you really read into that, what you'll see is there's a tension there. And it's the tension of our obedience even as Christians today. It's when God says go or do, and there's that, that, that I don't know if this is going to work, or I don't know why. I'm going to do it, but I, I really don't know why. I mean, don't miss that tension. Jesus is a carpenter. Peter's a fisherman. Peter really shouldn't listen to him. And, and, and the question here we see is, man, will I do the commands of God even when I struggle with the why? But do you see, see the experience with Jesus beginning to happen? Verse 6, they enclosed, um, and they, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, so many so that their nets were breaking. And when Peter was told to drop the net, he questioned Jesus. T- to be clear, as we all would, Jesus, I did that all night and it didn't work. God, I prayed that for the last six years and you didn't, Right? But when Jesus told his men to put the nets in the water, the fish came and to do the bidding of the master, the creator of the fish. There was hesitancy on the part of Peter. This is kind of nuts, but there was no hesitancy on the part of the fish. And the fish were headed to death. They were about to go be eaten. Men, the fish were headed to death as we are as Christians, as, as, as those who men claim to be disciples of Christ. Submission, men, to the master, to Christ leads to death. Death of ourselves, death of our desires, men, men, death of our own kingdom. So that the master Christ can be glorified through us. When Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die. Verse 7, they signal to their partners, the others in the boats, help me. And they came and filled the boats so that the boats began to sink. It's a lot of fish. But when Simon Peter saw it, look at his response. And I want you to get this, man. That many fish would have fed them for months. He could have gotten new boats, maybe better partners, maybe better nets. But his response isn't to see what he's gaining. His response is to see who he's in front of. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. And I am a sinner. A couple things happen. Number one, he worships. He sees God do something incredible. And his response is to worship. Another thing is, when he recognizes when God does something incredible, God's holiness, and yet at the same time, his own depravity, his own dirtiness, his own filth, his own sin. He realizes the gap between he and God. When experiencing Christ comes with a taste of God's holiness in our own depravity. 
That's why when you see someone older in life come to faith, oftentimes they come really broken because they realize how far they've run and what they've done. Man, a disciple of Jesus is a worshiper, a servant, and a witness. Peter is worshiping because of what he has witnessed, and then he becomes a witness of these things. So he and all who were with him, verse 9, were astonished at the catch they had taken. That astonished is the idea of worship. They are, man, they are blown away. And also there, there was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, which we won't get into this morning, but do not be afraid for now I will make, I will, for now only you will be catching men, which is his way of saying you're done fishing. We're about to do something different. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, I mean, these next five words, six words you can underline or write down, this is the definition of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. They left everything and they followed him. So here's the thing we know. We can't follow Christ without leaving everything. And the cost of following Christ is leaving everything, meaning our kingdom, our lives, our desires, what we want for my life, for, for happiness, for health, for comfort. And it says, and they left everything and followed him. Have you ever wondered what it means to be a disciple of Christ? There's your definition. And the idea of being sent is found right there. To leave everything and to, and to follow him. Fame glory, riches, power, when they let it all go, here's when, when they realized that nothing compared to Jesus as Lord. In this moment, what clicked was not, look what he can do, but what clicked was, look at who he is. And because of what they witnessed, who he was, they became witnesses. When we experience Christ, we can't help but become witnesses of Christ. No one experiences Christ and walks away the same. Either we go all in or we go all in rejecting, but none of us can experience Christ and walk away the same. A disciple of Jesus is a worshiper, a servant, and a witness. Look at this next experience with Christ. Look at the compassion in this next one, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there was a man full of leprosy. That's not just a hand. This is head to toe with leprosy. And when they saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And what faith, what, what thought, what prayer. I don't know about you, man. Oftentimes I'm going, God, will you, not if you will. And notice the difference. Verse 13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and look at man, don't miss this, and touched him. If this guy had leprosy head to toe, no one had touched this man in years. He had had zero human contact in years for however long he had had leprosy. And he touched him saying what? I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. I, when you read through Luke with me here over the next several months, I want you to notice how often Jesus speaks a word and immediately it happens. Immediately. Not like he says it and three days later, but immediately it happens. And Christ's word have, has power. Verse 14, and he charged them, tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof of them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. See, the more he did, the more attention he drew to himself. And the crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Come on, highlight, write down, circle verse 16. Write out the word solitude next to it. Look how Jesus responds. Look, he doesn't go, look what I did. He goes, I did something. I've got to get away. Look at what God did. I got to get away. Man, man, Jesus' power, his sustaining faithfulness, his endurance for ministry comes from getting away with the Father 
And don't miss that. It, it says he's full of power, but that power comes from him getting away to desolate places, on mountains, to be with God. I mean, church, it's the same for us. If there's not time set aside in solitude to be with the Father, you will falter. And a man full of leprosy, completely destitute, an outcast from society who hasn't had human contact in at least years, as long as he's had leprosy. No one would touch him. Jesus touches him. I mean, think about this experience he just had with Christ. Verse 18, verse 17, excuse me. You've probably heard this account if you've been to church. On one of those days, he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. There's a direct connection from 17 to 16. Draw an arrow, write in your journal. Like 17 doesn't happen without 16. It's the way scripture works. When it says there was power in the Lord to heal, that power, man, is, 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 comes from verse 16. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Man, this is quite a friend. When you want to serve someone so well that you and three other men would put your friend on a bed and find a way to push through the crowds to get to Christ. Again, consider the cost. Verse 19. Like, can we just like be really clear about this verse? Because I heard this verse all the time growing up in children's ministry, which is great, but I didn't understand really what was at stake. But finding no way to bring him in, they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd. They went up on the roof, let him down from his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. It's like we've had someone crash into the building. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about in the middle of a service, somebody cuts a hole in the roof because there's not room in the room to come inside. There's a cost to that. And when he saw their faith, can I just point out, can you circle the there? When he saw their faith, they didn't say his faith, their faith, the men bringing him. When he saw their faith, it's like pause and realize that there can be you at times as well if you're willing. When he saw their faith, I mean, what a, what a powerful idea. When he saw, if we can just get him to Jesus, what could Jesus do? And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, this is a flip out, verse 21. They began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus probably could have just said Yes. And it would have confused them more, but it would have been true. They actually are speaking into the character of Christ because they don't know who he is. They don't know why he's come. They're experiencing the Messiah. He's about to claim for the first time in Luke, I am the Messiah, and they can't hear it. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? but that you may know the Son of Man. So Paul's idea of Son of Man means Messiah. So that you know, may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up. Like, I love that. Man, I, I don't know where you are in life. I'm 40. When I sit in a chair too long, I don't immediately get up. Anybody there? Yeah, is it just me? Like it, but immediately this guy's on a bed and immediately he gets up. He gets up before them and picked up what he had been lying on. So he's got some strength to him and went home glorifying God. 
and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe. It says, we have seen extraordinary. Um, that, that, that word extraordinary is this Greek word paradoxa, meaning, men things you wouldn't normally expect to happen are happening because of Jesus. Listen, when we experience Christ, things that normally shouldn't and wouldn't be happening begin to happen. This is, this is the idea of what's taking place here. I mean, think back through this conversation. Verse 20, I see, man, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21, who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 23, which is easier to say, rise and pick up your bed or go home? And in the end, they see extraordinary things they wouldn't normally expect. Then you get another encounter with Christ, another experience with Christ. Verse 27, after he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, what does he say? Follow me. There it is again. To be my disciple, you must Follow me. And verse 28 shows his response and shows the cost of being a disciple. Verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to come and die, to leave everything to follow Jesus. If you want to know, okay, what does it look like for me, meant to be a disciple of Christ, to walk with Christ in faithfulness, that's it. Follow me. What does it look like to follow me? Leave everything and follow me. I want you to see, I mean, this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels, the next couple of things, the interactions that Jesus is going to have. Look at Levi's response to following Christ. He begins to follow Christ. He, he experiences something better than he's ever experienced on earth, chooses to give up everything to follow him, and look at one of the first things we see, a count at least, that, that Levi does. And Levi made a great feast. Now, there's a, there's a whole theology in verse 29 that we could unpack another day but that how we should love people that we try to bring the gospel to. First of all, it says Levi made a great feast. He didn't go pick up a few little Caesars, but a great feast. And then he did it in his house. He didn't say we're going to go to the park. He did it in his house. And, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So like, hang with me for a minute so I explain what's happening here. Tax collectors were horrible, despicable people. They were extortionists. They stole money from people. The way this worked was, if you're unaware, was if you were a tax collector, you were given by the government, go collect these taxes from these people. And so if you were to collect $10, it was up to you how you got it. So you might roll up and go, you owe me $20. I'm keeping 10, I'm giving 10 to the government. And you couldn't argue with them. So, so as you can imagine, these guys were not loved, they were hated. And when you're hated because you're an extortionist in your community, more than likely you don't have a ton of friendships. You don't walk into social house and he's like, hey, extortionist. That's not how that plays out, right? You walk in and they're like, I'm leaving because the guy's here. But look what he does. He throws a party for other tax collectors. So not only is Matthew or Levi there, but he's got all his friends who are just as sketchy as he is there. It's really interesting. The only friends you could have had as a tax collector because you were so sketchy and seen by the culture as, as such an outcast were other tax collectors. And therefore, he throws a tax collector party, a feast, and invites everyone. Modern-day thieves. And it says they're sitting there, and they're reclining at the table with them. Man, and Jesus is there. And a disciple is a, is a worshiper and a servant and a witness. And Levi, being a witness, wants others to witness Christ. Can you imagine Levi's invitations to the other tax collectors? Come and meet the one you've heard about, the one who calls me to give up my life to follow him. You did what, Levi? For the first time, these tax collectors would have felt loved and, listen, and acknowledged. Again, we see this, 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 this narrative, this idea, again, of Christ 
been acknowledging and loving people who were on the outside. These tax collectors, these modern day thieves hated by all, and they're probably there together because the only friends they have are people like them because no one else would accept them. And yet here comes Jesus offering kindness and forgiveness. Verse 30. And then the Pharisees and the scribes show up, grumbling, it says, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And underline that. Because you as a Christian, as a Christ father who is sent, should have a reason for why you eat with those who have never heard the gospel. And there's your reason. Here come the religious people. Why is he hanging out with people who are sinners? Why would he do this? Who does he think he is? He just claimed to be the Messiah. Listen, I wrote on two thoughts on verse 30. Religious people often bring condemnation and judgment, and that usually leads to rejection. Whereas disciples of Christ bring acceptance and kindness that often leads to repentance. When our goal in living sense should be to lead others to repentance, that we are so willing, men, to draw them in in kindness that it leads them to repentance, not rejection. I mean, I mean like, we, we don't get it, but how do you think the tax collectors felt in this moment? Think of the shame they would have felt in this moment. But Jesus doesn't shame them. Look what he says, verse 31. And he answered them, those who are, are well men have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is for you. This is for me. This is for every human who would hear it. Listen, I've been asked a lot um, in kind of like ministry circles. Hey, what have you learned in your one year of church planning? And here's, here's the biggest thing I've learned. Man, be willing to express and expose yourself as a mess to others. Because we're a mess at times. At times, life is messy. And when life is messy, it reminds me and others that I need and have a great Savior. But when I have a life that looks like it's all put together and it looks like it all fits in a box and, it's, and nothing's wrong, I don't have a new reason or a need to point to a Savior that's great. And so in this moment, he's saying, listen, I came for those who would acknowledge that their life is a mess and they need a Savior. I almost think he's speaking tongue-in-cheek. I almost think he's, he's being a little bit, probably almost picking at them a little bit by saying, man, you, you, you already claim to be righteous. You have no need for me, religious people. If you believe, though, you're a sinner, then you do see that you have need for me. Verse 32, man, don't miss this verse. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In addressing all these religious people, Jesus is really saying, ready? You don't know who I am, and you don't know why I'm here. I'm the Son of Man, the Messiah. I have come to seek and save the lost. I have found on those people who are willing to sit at the table at that toll road, and I have asked them to join me, and they have left everything to follow me. Jesus is saying, I came for Matthew. I came for tax collectors, for prostitutes and sinners. My people are a mess. They're the dirty people, but I'm going to shed my blood for them to make them clean. I came not for the self-righteous, but for the sinners. This is our Savior, church, the one who forgives us of our sins. He calls sinners to repentance to be his. He came to redeem and to make his people whole. So as he's sitting at the table, it's not shame or guilt or condemnation. He's looking at the religious people say, either get on or get out of the way. But man, man, it is about those who are willing to say, I am lost without Christ. I want to read you a story that I just think fits this so well, and I pray you'd hear it. It's about a pastor named Tony uh, that had, this maybe happened 20 years ago or so. 
A few years ago, Pastor Tony flew to Hawaii to speak at a conference. The way he tells it, he checks into his hotel and tries to get some sleep. Unfortunately, his internal clock wakes him at 3 a.m. The night is dark, the streets are silent, the world is asleep, but Pastor Tony is wide awake and his stomach is growling. He gets up and prowls the streets looking for a place to get some bacon and eggs for an early breakfast. Everything is closed except for a grungy diner, excuse me, dive in the alley. He goes in and sits at the counter, and the heavy guy behind the counter comes over and asks, what do you want? Tony says he isn't hungry anymore, but he sees a donut and says, I'll have that and a black coffee. As he sits munching his donut and sipping his coffee at 3.30 in the morning, in walk, eight or nine provocative, loud prostitutes just finished with their night's work. They plop down on the counter, and Pastor Tony finds himself in an uncomfortable situation, surrounded by this group of smoking, swearing And the word they use is hookers. He gulps his coffee, planning to make a quick getaway. Then the woman next to him says to her friend, you know what? Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. To which her friend nastily responds, so what do you want from me? A birthday party? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? The first woman, oh, come on. Why do you have to be so mean? Why do you have to put me down? I'm just saying it's my birthday and I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should I have a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? Well, then Pastor Tony heard that. He made a decision. He sat and waited until the women left. And then he asked the heavy guy behind the counter, do they come here every night? The man said, yes. The one on the right, he said, does she come every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. She's here every night. She's been coming here for years. Why do you want to know? Said the man behind the counter. Because she just said that tomorrow is her birthday. What do you think? Do you think maybe uh, we throw her a little birthday party right here in the diner? A cute kind of weird smile crept over the chubby man. I'm reading it, so chubby man's cheeks. That's great, he says. Yeah, that's great. I like it. He turns to the kitchen and shouts at his wife. Hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday, and he wants to throw her a party right here. His wife comes out and says, that's terrific, she says. You know, Agnes is really nice. She's always trying to help other people, and nobody does anything nice for her. So they make plans. Pastor Tony says he'll be back at 2.30 a.m. the next morning with some decorations. And the man whose name turns out to be Harry says he'll make a cake. At 2.30 the next morning, Pastor Tony is back. He has crepe paper and other decorations and a sign made of big pieces of cardboard that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. They decorate the place from one end to the other and get it looking great. Harry has gotten the word out on the street about the party. And by 3.15, it seemed every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. There were hookers wall to wall. At 3.30 a.m. on the dot, the door swings open and in walks Agnes and her friend. Tony has everybody ready and they all shout and scream, happy birthday, Agnes. Agnes is absolutely flabbergasted. She's stunned. Her mouth falls open, her knees start to buckle, and she almost falls over. And when the birthday cake with all the candles is carried out, That's when she totally loses it. Now she's sobbing and crying. Harry, who's not used to seeing a prostitute cry, gruffly mumbles, blow out the candles, Agnes, and cut your cake. So she pulls herself together and blows them out. Everyone cheers and she yells and yells, cut the cake, cut the cake. But Agnes looks down at the cake and without taking her eyes off, it slowly and softly says, look, Harry, if it's okay with you, uh, can I just keep the cake for a little while and not eat it right away? Harry doesn't know what to say and shrugs and says, sure, if that's what you want, take it home if you want. Oh, could I, she says, looking at Pastor Tony. I live just down the street a couple of doors, and I want to take the cake home. Is that okay? I'll be right back, honest. She gets off her stool, picks up the cake, and carries it high in front of her like it's a holy grail. 
And everyone watches in stunned silence. And when the doors close behind her, no one seems to know what to do. They all look at each other. Then they all look at Pastor Tony. So Tony gets up on a chair and says, what do you say we pray? And they're in a hole in the wall cafe with half the prostitutes in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, listening to Pastor Tony as he prays for Agnes. When he's finished, Harry, the owner of the diner, leans over and with a a trace of hostility in his voice says, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you go to anyway? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, Tony answers him quietly. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. And Harry thinks for a moment and in a mocking way says, no, you don't. There ain't no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Yeah, I'd join a church like that. And I, and I, I, I share that story. I heard it years ago because it so resonates with what Christ is doing. And so often we get in this mentality of the external matters when in the end Christ came for the sinner, which is you and I and all others who would claim to be sinners. A disciple is, of Jesus is a worshiper, a servant, and a witness. And to be a disciple is to know and experience Jesus. And so my question to you this morning is, do you know and have you experienced Jesus? Man, would you pray with me? And God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning. We pray that you would be <clears throat> glorified. God, in our lives, help us to believe your word, to believe that we're sinners and that we are hopeless, Jesus, without your sacrifice. Help us to know that, to believe that, and to believe that daily, that it would prompt us going back to you. God, help us to see that we've also been sent to live as disciples who follow you, who take notice of those who have never met you, don't know you, never experienced you. God, would you, would you help us, God, to see the need and to step into the need to share, Jesus, your gospel. Man, if you're here today and, and you want to know more about placing faith in Christ or you're watching online, I'll be available after the service. And I would love to chat with you. God, we need you. We love you.